0: this morning comes from Zechariah, the fourth chapter. Zechariah can be found as the second to last book in the Old Testament. And this is the fifth in a series of night visions that the prophet Zechariah has been given for the people of Israel, but also for us today. Hear the word of God found in Zechariah chapter 4. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of sleep. And he said to me, "What do you see?" I said, "I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, "'What are these, my Lord?' Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, "'Do you not know what these are?' I said, "'No, my Lord.' Then he said to me, "'This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, "'not by might, nor by power, "'but by my Spirit,' says the Lord of hosts. "'Who are you, O great mountain? "'Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain.' And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel." These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes, from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray and ask his help that we might believe and apply this word to our lives. O Lord, as we come before your word, help us to be like Samuel who said, I am here, Lord. Your servant listens. Help us to listen to this word. May your spirit make our ears open our eyes perceptive, quicken our hearts to have confidence in this word, and make our hands and feet ready to obey. And we pray in the name of our Savior Christ. Amen. Please be seated. You may not recognize the name John Chapman, but you'll recognize the nickname that he went by. His nickname was Johnny Appleseed. He was born just two years before the American Revolution. And he became legendary for selecting seeds, cultivating them, planting seedlings, and then creating nurseries through what at the time was the great Northwest, Pennsylvania and Ohio. You may not know he was motivated by a missionary zeal. He was part of a uh, small Tradition that had its theological problems, but in spite of those, he was known for his generosity. He rarely dealt in cash and preferred to barter, and he would save the best things to give to those who needed them more than he. And even the Native Americans respected his intimacy with nature and treated him as a friend. His life was one that was meant to ensure people against hunger by spreading food throughout the territory. And it's a wonderful story for school children. A tree planter who sowed more good than apple trees, even. And one man with apparently little means, who became a story for the ages, really. Uh, If there was a day of small things, Johnny Appleseed would be an example of it. But did you realize this, that God is in the tree planting business? He doesn't plant apple trees, at least not in this respect, but He plants trees of light. For uh, we read a story this morning, a vision of a menorah, which is, in effect, a tree. And this tree represents the people of God. And this vision will reveal to us that the people of God, as a tree of light, have a mission. They have a mission to shine the light of God Himself into the world. As one Old Testament writer put it, this vision tells us of the menorah mission of the people of God. It tells the story of what God's temple, when He reestablishes it among His people... And comes to dwell with them again what His purpose is for the people of God, which is to shine His light into the world. God's people have a menorah mission. And that menorah mission must come from the Spirit-inspired prophetic word that God gives His people. We want to observe the different aspects of this menorah mission so that we might be a light for the nations the light of God. And the first thing we can observe from this vision is the mission itself. The mission is to reflect divine glory, to reflect God's glory. This menorah is a tree of life. It is the people of God. Now, where do do I get that, you might be wondering, because isn't a menorah a lamp? Yes, but you realize, you know, this menorah goes back to the menorah, the lampstand that Moses constructed for the tabernacle. This is not the same menorah, it's different in dramatic ways. But even the original menorah that Moses made had leaves engraved upon it and it uh, was designed in the fashion of a tree. So it's more than just a lamp, it is a tree. It is a tree that sheds light. But as I said, this, this, this tree, this lampstand, is beyond Moses' lampstand. The original menorah had seven lights on it, and it was fed by olive oil. And the priests, every day, would have to trim the wicks and pour more oil in the lamp. I remember my mother telling me stories of having to take care of the coal oil lamps in her home as she grew up. A burdensome task. This lamp is different. This lamp is, uh, is uh, wired to the grid, as they say. It has, a, it has a self-supplied supply of oil, which comes from olive trees that are funneled into this lamp. But more than that, it doesn't just have seven lights on it. It has seven branches, but on each of those branches are seven lights. This is a tree of seven times seven, let's see, 49 lights. And if you know anything about the words the, the symbolic meaning of the of the number seven in scripture, you know the number of perfection. This is a tree that surpasses even Moses' light tree. And it is a light that will perfectly shine God's light into the world. And we can look at different possibilities for what this lampstand might represent. It's not Zerubbabel, the king, the the descendant of David, because he's mentioned separately. It's not the anointed ones who supply the light. And by process of elimination, we can arrive at the possibility that the light is the people of God. But you realize throughout Scripture, God's people are referred to as a light. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, we might uh, remember this familiar expression. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a, as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nations. And of course, this is a theme which the New Testament picks up. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said to those disciples that were gathered around Him, He says, you are the light of the world. Your cities sit on a hill whose light cannot be hidden. But even more than that, we see uh, the mission of the church in 1 Peter chapter 2 is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so it becomes plain in the larger context of Scripture, as well as in the in the clues given us here in Zechariah's vision, that this menorah is the people of God. And it's really not a new thing to think of God's people as a light. It's also not a new thing to consider the people as a tree. Because even the book of Psalms begins that way, doesn't it? The one who delights in the law of the Lord will be like a tree planted by water, and it's going to bear fruit year-round, not just seasonally. And so it tells us something about the mission of God's people. Our catechism doesn't begin by saying man's chief end, the chief end of every human being is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's because the light that the people of God are to emanate is not a light that is native to it, but a light that is given to it. It is, in fact, the light of God, God's glory. And so the people of God from the very beginning have been purposed by God. Even if you go back to the creation of man and woman in God's image, they were to be glory bearers. They were to be mirrors, if you will, of God's glory. Of course, the first man and woman and we and them, we failed in that mission to be a light to the world. And so it took another Adam. It took Jesus, the second Adam, who said of himself, I am the light of the world. But Jesus didn't stop there. He went on to tell his disciples, let your light shine so that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, Matthew five fourteen. So the menorah mission of the people of God is to reflect divine glory By being a people of light, by following God's commands, by loving righteousness, by showing mercy, by being a people full of forgiveness and care and concern for one another. In fact, the book of Revelation, with the letters to the seven churches, addresses each of those seven churches, Jesus himself addresses the seven churches of Revelation as lampstands. And so we see that the people of God are on a menorah mission to be a light reflecting God's glory out in the world by keeping God's commands, by walking in His ways. And it might be kind of a dismal challenge to the people of Zechariah's day. The little remnant that had come back from captivity, hostile neighbors all around, great empires surrounding them at a distance, Wondering when God would return and how He would return. And we've been seeing that in Zechariah's visions. That's what the visions are all about. God will come and dwell among His people again. The last time I was with you, we saw how God took away the shame of the chief priest so that His presence could now abide with His people once again. We see God's people aren't simply called to go to church now that sin has been dealt with, but they are to shine in the world. And so even as we look around us, we see, you know, a small church on a highway at some distance from the beach, of virile beach, and you might wonder at times. It's a dark world, and how can we shine the light? The next thing I want us to see is the encouragement for us. Because the menorah mission of God's people must not be daunted either by small beginnings or great mountains. When God calls forth Zerubbabel, that is the descendant of David, and says that Zerubbabel is going to finish the temple because that is what the angel is saying. Verse 10 tells us, Whoever has despised the day of small things will rejoice that even though it's a shabby, a motley crew that's come back from exile, don't worry about it. God is building His temple. God is making His people into His light. So small beginnings should not discourage us. And even when it seems the church is weak and and, and Christians aren't always reflecting well the glory of God, we just have to be patient and let God's light shine. We should not despise the day of small things, but when we see that light unveil that light revealed we're going to rejoice Uh, I don't know if you have uh, seen church names that made you curious I was uh, reflecting uh, this morning on some, some of the long church names I've seen you know things like Church of God in holiness for the nation's apostolic bread of life or you know something like that I don't know how you get a website address out of that Near where my wife teaches, there's a very small church building. It was somewhat dilapidated. It's been sold, bought and sold a few times. and A little church moved in there, and they, and they changed the name. And they called it World Outreach Center. Victory World Outreach Center. The first time I drove by, I thought, that's ambitious. But then, as I reflect upon what God says here about the Day of Small Things, I said, No, those perhaps are people who better understand than I what God is doing through His people. That we should have world ambitions not to control and prosper and and accumulate and and do things for ourselves, but rather we should have ambitions about what God will do as He shines His light through us. But it's not just uh, small beginnings that might discourage or daunt God's people. It's great mountains. Uh, God uh, says in this vision, as soon as I find the verse, Who are you, O great mountain? Verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before a rubble; you shall become a plain. Now, what's being described here? Well, we saw back in uh, the second vision that the, the, the empire, the power's, the powers of the world, the great global powers were described as horns, which God would break off. The book of Daniel describes this as well. God will break off the horns. That is, he'll, he'll overthrow the empires of the world in the process of establishing His own reign, His own rule. And that's what you aspire to in your name, Christ the King Church. That's audacious, isn't it? When there are kings throughout the nations who are more powerful seemingly, who are more daunting, who are more threatening. But what does the prophet, again, that prophet Isaiah, say about that? He says, the nations are a drop in the bucket. I plant and I pluck up kings and empires. You see, before the world powers, it might seem audacious to claim to be the light of the world. But when the light which enlightens every man came into the world, not only did he suffer and die for sin, but he rose such that, Paul says in Colossians 1, that he put to shame every dominion. Jesus said before he went to the cross, now will the ruler of this world be cast down. Jesus destroyed death, Hebrews chapter 2 tells us. And if we look back upon the history of time since the... Resurrection and the ascension of Christ into his kingship and his glory, we see that little beginning of 12 unlearned men, which was what they observed about Peter and John when they were preaching after Pentecost. That little contingent of followers of Jesus have truly changed the world. The light of the world has changed world history through common people who have come into his light and become recipients of His life. So we mustn't be thrown off as a church by the powers of the world because we shouldn't despise the day of small things and we shouldn't worry about the great mountains. In fact, I believe in the Gospels when Jesus said, say to this mountain, be moved and it will be cast into the sea. We often wonder, is that a name it and claim it verse? I believe they're speaking specifically of Zechariah's statement here. That the mountains of great world powers will be as nothing before the faith of God's people following Jesus Christ. So we have a menorah mission as the people of God to reflect God's light. We shouldn't be daunted by small beginnings or great mountains. But we have to depend, and this is the third thing I want you to see, we have to depend upon God's means. And there are two means by which he's doing that according to these verses. The first one is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the builder. Zerubbabel was a descendant of David. He came back from exile uh, with those who returned. Ezra mentions Zerubbabel. He's mentioned in uh, Haggai as well. the, The book which completes the story of the building, the rebuilding of God's temple. And In keeping with the way God had done things in the past, when it's time for a temple to be built, it's not priest work, it's king work. David wanted to build a house for God, but God promised he would build David a house. And through David's son Solomon, the temple, the first temple, was built. It's kings who build temples. And this would be a restoration of the kingship of David because Zerubbabel was a descendant of David. David. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy through Zerubbabel. Because he is the one who said in John chapter 2, standing in front of Herod's Rococo temple, (laughs) and Rococo, as I understand it, is kind of a word for overly artful, overly designed. Jesus stood in front of Herod's great temple and said, tear down this temple and I will raise it in three days. And they were confused. They said it took Herod 40 years to build this temple. Herod was really adding on and building on to the temple that was rebuilt in the story of Ezra and Haggai. But then John the Apostle explains, Jesus wasn't talking about Herod's temple. He was talking about himself. Because raised on the third day, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, is the final temple of God. Don't look to stones, but look to the cornerstone, the one rejected by men. Psalm 118 tells us because the stone which was rejected will become the cornerstone of a new edifice, a new dwelling place for God. And Zerubbabel Receiving the promise but not being the one to ultimately fulfill it is a symbol of that. That God has provided a master builder and in light of redemptive history he was a carpenter. But it was the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that established a dwelling place for all nations. That made a house of prayer for all peoples. And so the mission depends upon God's means by providing a king, Christ the king, who has built God's final dwelling place. If we look to the end of the book of Revelation in the new heaven and earth, John says, I saw no temple. That's disappointing until you read the next phrase, right? Because the Lamb and God Are its temple. And there is neither even a sun or moon in that new heavens and earth because the, the light of God is its light day and night. And that leads us to the second provision of God's means the golden oil. It's described as golden oil in the latter part of the vision. It's a, it's, a bizarre, it's a bizarre vision if you start trying to draw it or paint it. I, I challenge some of you artistic ones to maybe try to do that, and many have. You've got the lampstand with its 49 lights, and then you have these olive trees standing on both sides, and they have branches that feed into the bowl, which is the gas tank, if you will, of this light. And this oil, of course, represents the Spirit of God that the Spirit of God would enable, would supply the power for this light to shine. And so perhaps the most well-known verse of this passage, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, He sent His Spirit upon His church so that the apostles were able to testify boldly to what God had done in Christ. But more than that, His Spirit being His presence among us on earth has become our dwelling place. I tweeted this last night. Now I'm in an argument with a couple of pastors over what I meant. That's the problem with tweeting. He said, while in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God empowered God's servants to do His mission, in the New Covenant, the Spirit of God becomes the temple of God. Bezalel was filled with the Holy Spirit, Moses' chief builder, and he made the items for the tabernacle. Solomon was filled with the Spirit of God, so that he, through Hiram the master builder, would build the temple of his reign. But the Spirit of God is now the temple itself. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says twice in 1 Corinthians, both to us individually but also to us corporately. The glory of God is our dwelling place. You have this wonderful oxymoron of not only God in us, but us in God. This is what Jesus prayed for, that we in Him and He in us would be how we would abide with Him, the tree of life. And so the Spirit is given to God's people as the means by which they can accomplish, and they must accomplish God's purpose. The, 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 the church has been at its best over the centuries when it is at its weakest, humanly speaking. And the church has been at its worst over the centuries, when it has been at its best, humanly speaking. Because to be at our best, humanly speaking, means it reduces our dependence on God. It turns our eyes and our hearts away from the things of God toward the things of this earth. Near where I grew up, as I would fly into St. Louis over the last few years and drive to see my family about an hour and a half southeast, I noticed an enormous construction project off in the distance. And the only tall things in that part of the country are barns and silos. But this thing towered over uh, the prairie land where it was located. Eventually, I drove by there to see what was going on. It's the Prairie State Power Plant. And right underneath the Prairie State Power Plant is the Prairie State Coal Mine. Ah, there's an idea. They build a power plant right on top of a coal mine. Not great planning in terms of clean air and so forth. But you get the idea that God has planted His menorah people in a living vital relationship with the Spirit of God so that as it looks to the Spirit rather than to might and power, it will accomplish its menorah mission. So the people of God have a menorah mission to reflect the glory of God to the world. We shouldn't be daunted by small things that are true of us or of great big things out there in the world as long as we carry out our menorah mission depending upon God's means. But the last thing I'd like us to see from this vision is that the mission must be guided by the prophets. The mission... Must be guided by the prophets. Now, where is that coming from? Well, there are these two olive trees, as we saw already, which have the golden pipes which feed the lamp, the menorah. And who are these olive trees? Uh, If you're paying close attention to details, you might first think, well, Joshua the high priest was in the last chapter, Zerubbabel, the the Davidic king, is now in this vision. Maybe it's the two anointed ones, uh, the high priest and the king. But as we've observed, Zerubbabel has been mentioned separately from the olive trees And we don't need to get too bogged down in speculation. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson one time that said of the book of Revelation, children understand it better than grown-ups. Who are these olive trees? Well, the book of Zechariah began with a reminder of what happened to the generation of their fathers. That... God sent the prophets to warn them about what would happen if they continued to egregiously break covenant with God. And he said, the prophets, do they live forever? But it happened. That was the first thing we saw in a series on Zechariah, that what the prophets said would happen, happened. And Zechariah begins his prophecy by saying, remember what the prophets said, return to me and I will return to you. But that's not the only uh, help we have to understand that these are the prophets, these two branches, because in Revelation chapter eleven, John drawing heavily upon Zechariah. There's no way to understand Revelation unless you, at least to any marginal beyond any marginal degree, unless you understand the Old Testament's behind it. John is just preaching the Old Testament in a fairly bizarre but powerful way. And he sees these two prophets who are the two olive trees who are persecuted and even killed, but their witness is vindicated by what God does in the world. This was what was so egregious when Jesus came into Jerusalem and he, and he looked over Jerusalem before he came into, into it on what we call Palm Sunday. He said, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you to myself as a mother hen gathers her chicks. He said, in Luke's version, he says, You who killed the prophets. You see, the religious leaders, not the people, not those of Israel who followed Jesus and heard the good news that he was the Messiah, but those who had too much to lose, or so they thought, who resisted his coming, who rejected his authority, and who ultimately conspired with the great mountain of their day, who conspired with Rome to have him put to death. They suffered the fate of the nations, those who rejected Him. But all who accepted His invitation to come, out of them He made a new people, both Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, the New Testament tells us. So you see, these really are the prophets that God has given for His people to remain in communion with him, to remain vitally connected to him. Well, we don't have prophets today, or if we do, we kind of look upon them skeptically. If somebody says, by the way, I'm a prophet, you should grab your billfold. (coughs) But yet, the prophetic ministry continues through the teaching of God's inspired word. Now, here's a very basic thing, and it is so basic that it is easily and commonly overlooked. The people of God are a people of the book. The people of God are a people of God's word. We know nothing of God except what he has revealed to us by his word and spirit. If you've sort of zigzagged along in the Christian life, or if you've kind of floated on top of the water and 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 had your good life, but you've never settled this question. This is a vital question to settle. Will you be a person of the Word of God? Job didn't like the news that circumstances had revealed to him, but he knew God and he said, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. If we're not a people of the Word, then we'll find that God rarely disagrees with us. But if we're people of the Word, we're going to be constantly seeing our lack of conformity to His Word. We're going to find God saying things that we don't agree with, that come to us hard. And that doesn't mean they're not hard. But for the Christian who has settled the matter, what God says, I will believe. I will believe it is true. I will believe it is reliable. I believe it is trustworthy such that I can entrust my entire life to its directions. Then that person walks <coughs> Excuse me. That person walks in the light of God's word. The word that is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. So we are a people of the word of God. If we are to fulfill our menorah mission to be a light to the nations, to be the light of God in a dark world, we won't be discouraged by small beginnings or by great mountains. We'll trust in God's king and in the spirit which that king has endowed his church with and we will look to his word for our marching orders in life. Some of you have probably traveled to Rome. <clears throat> I have not. But um, I read and I understand uh, how impressive is the Arch of Titus. Has anybody seen the Arch of Titus? Now, it's noteworthy for no other reason. If if for no other reason, then it's the, actually the inspiration of the Arc de uh, Triomphe or the Arc the Arch of Victory uh, in Paris. But a little bit about the Arch of Titus. Titus's uh, son constructed, his son Domitian re- constructed the Arch of Titus, I'm sorry, his brother, constructed the Arch of Titus to celebrate Titus's great victories. And the underside of that arch depicts one of the victories of which Titus was the most proud. And the victory of which he is the most proud is his siege and eventually sacking of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And so when you look at that part of the arch of Titus, the thing that is in the center of vision of that Carving, that elaborate carving, showing his victory, is a menorah. Because when he sacked Jerusalem, he took all of the furniture out of the temple and he carried it back to Rome as spoils of war. In fact, it's the oldest depiction, along with perhaps some coins that we have found from the age of the Maccabees, is the oldest depiction of what the actual temple menorah looked like. This menorah depicts Israel's defeat, which ironically is now the symbol for modern-day Israel. If you see Israeli national symbols such as currency and coinage, you'll see it there. But, you know, we can say to Titus today, and we can say to the Roman Empire today, Who are you, O great Titus? Who are you, O great empire? If the Lord tarries, if Christ's coming awaits longer, we may one day say, Who are you, O United States of America? But the menorah, the tree of life, the light to shine to the nations is now a global, worldwide people of God That are called to reflect God's glorious light by their changed lives. It was the deeds of God's people, according to Rodney Stark's History of the Christian Church, it was the deeds of God's people that finally made Rome stop killing Christians in the Colosseum just blocks from the Arch of Titus and to embrace the Christian religion as the one true way. To know God, the church forgets its lessons from history. We forget that it is not by might and not by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. But as the hymn encourages us with deeds and love of love and mercy, His kev- heavenly kingdom advances in this world as we reflect God's glorious light. May God give us the grace through the power of the Holy Spirit and the directions of His Word to fulfill our menorah mission, both as individuals whose lives reflect a greater king than Caesar and who corporately reflect that there is a new world that invites people to inhabit it so that they might know the grace of God and in turn reflect His glory as well. Will you pray with me? God, we know that lampstands can grow weak and grow dim. We can read of the seven churches of the book of Revelation and say, we are those churches in various ways and degrees. But Lord, we pray not only that you would not remove your light from us, but that you would brighten it, that you would make it so visible that it cannot be hid so that when people in this community and people around the world see the light of the city which you have established on a hill through our King Jesus, that they would glorify you as well. For we pray it in his name. Amen.